the beginning and ending of the different activities on retreat, they're good times to check the attitude. So as we're settling in, feeling the body sitting and simply checking how the attitude is now in the mind. For example, how is the quality of faith or confidence now? So we're not manufacturing anything, we're simply noticing how it is. How's the energy in the body and mind? Strong, bright, heavy, withdrawn, And you might notice that quite naturally or perhaps with a little prompting, you can bring in or cultivate the heart, the mind that is better able to be present, to show up. Simple acknowledgement that this heart cares about this life, cares about the way it is right now in the body and mind. If it's quite beautiful, then the heart can appreciate how beautiful the mind is, how beautiful the moment is. If it's difficult, the heart knows how to care about that, appreciating that It isn't easy being a human being, at times at least. And noticing how any shift in attitude affects the quality of mindful awareness, the mind's skill or capacity to connect or to know it's like this now. Affects the stability of the mind, the calm, quality of fearlessness and persistence. So anytime during the sit today Feel free, or any time today, feel free to make an intervention with the attitude and just see the effect. If it makes the mind more tight, or if the shift in attitude supports the practice. Simply acknowledging whatever is being known, whatever is happening in the mind or body. 
pleasant or unpleasant. The mind and body relaxed. In a very real sense, the objects of experience arise here in the space of awareness. So the work in practice is to remember, to recognize and remember that objects of experience are being known. And then to sustain this recollectedness And of course, it's okay to develop some steadiness with a particular object, like the movement of the breath in the body, or simply to receive whatever's predominant, whatever shows up, acknowledging that it is being known. And then finally this morning, remembering that one of the most basic and functional expressions of love is the understanding that everything belongs. So bring in this understanding as often as is useful. No mistakes.
just another experience to acknowledge it has a right to be here. Can this be okay? So let's continue in silence now.
bringing the right effort to this intention for continuous mindful awareness. Light but engaged. And remember, if it's sticky, if there's some experience that the mind gets caught in, then acknowledge that this is being known. This is how it is. See if there's an underlying dis-ease of the heart, uneasiness of the heart. Acknowledging that discomfort, that pain in the heart. And then see if the reactivity, the aversion or greed is necessary once the mind has acknowledged the underlying pain in the heart. It might be that the reactivity simply falls away.
Notice the attitude without judgment. When the attitude is seen clearly, wisdom naturally, if possible, makes adjustments. Notice the wholesome qualities that may be present to some degree, like the quality of energy. The heart, the mind engaged, connecting, knowing. The quality of interest and investigation. Enjoy, joyful interest. The qualities of calm, tranquility. Any quality of stillness, steadiness, and the beautiful quality of equanimity. Just bringing these qualities to mind has an effect on the mind. So although the awakening process is a natural process, because of the teachings, we can participate or support this natural process by bringing to mind the appropriate information, like the wholesome qualities. And that affects how things unfold in the mind. Time for some questions. Yeah, Laurel. Uh, One thing that's maybe confusing
teasing me a little about this practice as you've outlined it is um, it, it tends in my case to be kind of like a verbal analysis which I don't associate with meditation and so I'll be thinking alright now I'm feeling this but it's probably because I'm really feeling this and, and then I'm thinking well I might be putting myself into the shrink's office here, you know, and and so I'd like, I guess I'd like to ask you to comment a bit on that. Yeah. So in the context of our practice, which includes most of the day, not just when we're in the hall, thinking is useful or appropriate to the degree that the thoughts direct the mind to this non-conceptual unfolding of body-mind. So that in the, in the practice of being aware, thoughts are seen as a mental activity being known. And of course, if there's any charge or any um, physical reflection of those thoughts, that's also then being known and actually can help in, in terms of stabilizing the attention when there's a lot of mental activity is to be aware of the physical reflection of that mental activity. Um, so we're not, we don't need to do much uh, analyzing, conceptual analyzing. It is useful, like I said at the very end, to bring up some information. You don't need to wait to the end of the set to do, do that. But at any point, to bring in the instructions. This is one of the reasons we had the book out for people to take. It's one of the reasons there are interviews and Dharma talks. Because information on this conceptual level because of course when we're talking about the teachings of the Buddha it's on the level of concept but concepts are useful when they point the mind direct the mind to present moment awareness of the mind and body so you just have to check and partly we can notice by the effect of the thinking you know that's that's what gives us uh, some sense of whether this is skillful thinking or unskillful thinking. If the thinking is either not leading anywhere or we can catch that it's entangling the mind, more caught, more tight, more burdened, then that's not right thinking. That's not useful. But when the thinking stabilize, clarifies and stabilizes the mind, then that's useful thinking. So skill, in terms of how we practice, needs to be defined by the effect of the practice, of the intervention or what the mind is doing, how the mind is relating. And not based on what you think is true or what you think you heard, but what's actually the effect. And you see it really draws the mind into the practice. Feeling responsible for cause and effect draws the mind more into the practice, which is the continuity of awareness, so that we're responsible for seeing the effect of our practice interventions, whatever they might be. One intervention might be just leave everything alone, just let everything happen. Well, don't just assume that's right. See what happens when we just have a like a more nth degree hands-off approach. And then maybe at other times a more directed approach, directing the attention 
in different ways, being more parental. No, you can't do that. <laughs> you stay here. <laughs> and then just notice what the results are of that way of practicing. So we don't, you know, in some ways we don't want to be responsible. <laughs> It'd be so much easier. I, I even think of this, this thought comes up in my mind all the time, you know. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a fully realized, you know, teacher who lived with me? <laughs> See, that's called delusion. <laughs> but it probably, I mean, I'm guessing it would be really great ultimately, but it may not be very pleasant. <laughs> but that's not the case, right? It's not reality. The reality is this, this is our reality. And so we just do the best we can. And especially now in the West where there's so much information about Dharma out there, we have to even more so take personal responsibility for cause and effect. So what happens in and, and that process of integrating the different points of view? Uh, Steve talked about that, I think, the first night, that you're going to hear a lot, even from the three of us who have a, a pretty common shared background. One of my important teachers is sitting next to me. <laughs> so, you know, but still, even with three different voices, three different personalities, we're hearing a lot. And then we have Saida's book and all of the instruction you've gotten from the past. Some of you have been practicing for decades. So there's a lot of information that we have to integrate and make it uh, our own in a sense, because we have our own experience with applying it in the moment. Thanks, Laurel, for the question. Yeah, in the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even your description, you know, is is really it indicates a more subtlety of the practice because there are there's in a way there's always a torment on some subtle or not so subtle level for the mind to notice, and there's an art to. Um, what the mind is going to attend to. And like I said a moment ago, you could just see what the mind attends to, or you could be more directed, directive, where you're asking the mind to come back to more open attention, maybe of the whole, full field of awareness, hearing, sensing the sensations in the body, seeing. 
and not let the attention go right to that particular torment. And actually, that's a useful intervention for torment. There's two ways to deal with torments. One is to look at it, to open to it, and to allow this deconstruction process to happen, to see that it's just that, see what's behind it, see that that's just that. The other, by opening the field of awareness, in a way, we're undermining the wrong view of the torment, because torments, by definition, draw out that attachment. You know, it's my torment. I'm worried about this. I really want that. So to redirect the attention back to a more open attention to sound and sensation and sight, whatever else is being known in the moment, it's in a way um, activating that understanding that that's just a torment. It's just another object being known. So sometimes try that and then see what happens when you do that. And don't assume it was the right thing to do because maybe you're doing it because you're afraid of the torment. Or maybe you keep going to the torment because you want to get rid of it. So it's always about the motivation. And that's, we don't really learn about the mind and these underlying motivations until we experiment. We try different ways. Sometimes we go, but if it's feeling like you're going, 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 then look at the motivation. Are you in a rush? You know, do you feel like you can't practice until you get rid of all of these torments? Why can't this work at looking at the torments, be spacious and relaxed and enlivening? So this is, the, this is what I would, instead of giving a straight answer, you know, whether to go into or back off of, just try both and see, see what the effects are. And remember, we're in it for the long haul. And that's actually, it's, I don't know if we're actually in it for the long haul, but it's really skillful to have that idea. <laughs> Deborah and, and Steve don't know, but we do this swinging thing with the arms in Qigong. And in that and other movements, I say, imagine you're going to do it forever. And it changes our attitude. Like if we imagine we're going to be looking at torments forever, we're going to bring a different attitude to the work. But if we think we're about to be done with it or, or something like that, it, it kind of skews the quality of effort. Maybe time for one more. Well, you know, we talk sometimes about the, the term cessation and uh, it's often talked about in, in more subtle aspects of practice. But when these patterns of the mind express themselves of constructing something or rejecting something, what we call the torments, then the cessation of that is not having a problem, like being aware of it is enough. And if there's enough stability and you're aware of that, the mind that's constructing or the mind that's rejecting something, then you're going to notice that it's unpleasant, that that 
The mind is in energetically gripping. It has an agenda to create or construct some, something or to reject something. So notice that. And when you have a, some steadiness with that, naturally, and you can prompt this, but naturally the mind will be interested if that activity of constructing and rejecting itself is being caused by something. Because we've been training the mind to be interested in cause and effect, like how it's all unfolding. So that interest in like, why is the mind constructing and rejecting constantly? So you might, in a sense, the attention might settle into what's more subtle, a more generalized uneasiness of the heart or uh, a more generalized pain of the heart. And now you can be aware of that. Oh, this is here. This is being known now. This is just this subtle, pervasive uneasiness of the heart. Maybe it's a feeling of lack. Maybe it's a feeling of anxiety or fear. And some stability there, knowing this. And then quite naturally, but you can prompt this, Saida Utejaniya suggests you ask the question, well, is the constructing or rejecting necessary now? Now that the heart is aware of this underlying anxiety or fear or sense of lack, and has some steadiness with that, do we need all this surface activity of constructing and rejecting? And again, you're not expecting an answer to the question, but the question changes the mind that's knowing. See, questioning support right view coming into the mind. So that teaching on cessation is how can this activity of constructing or rejecting arise and then cease with no remainder, you know? So it's not, then you're trying to, you know, you notice your mind constructing or rejecting and then immediately the mind wants to construct the self who doesn't construct. So it tends to feed back into itself, whether we're into rejecting or into constructing. But understanding is what allows things to cease. So that pattern ceases. And you know what? Things have been ceasing all life long. I mean, just think about all the torments we've had over the last 50 years or 60 years or 20 years. And they've ceased because it would be very crowded right now (laughs) if those things hadn't ceased. So these patterns do cease. And the question is, can the mind get clearer about how that all happens and how understanding can support the cessation so that we're not so concerned about the the defilements or the torments arising because we know they are cease and we know how they cease through not being fed, basically, fed by wrong view. So we need to leave it here. Thanks for the comments and questions and a couple of announcements. We'll have Qigong at four o'clock today downstairs. And then uh, I'm sure you're feeling now right in the heart of the retreat, all the work we've done to sensitize the mind and the heart, and really appreciating the protection that we create here together. So let's continue to appreciate the safety of the retreat container. And a lot of the safety has to do with the fact that we're all here together, but we create this container where we don't have to be social beings. We don't have to activate our personalities very much. And that is such a gift to have the support of community 
but not have to be somebody for each other. And that's why we have all the, you know, the, the sort of the culture of retreats at IMS. It's very specific. And at first it might feel a little strange if, if you're on your first retreat, but after a while, we really trust it. And I know some of you are here with your partners or with good friends. And so it's especially important that you give each other space. It's a gift. So not just to the people you know, but everybody, uh, this idea that we're all here together, but we're practicing alone. It's a very personal practice in a sense that we do together because it's supportive to do it this way. So just to maintain that, that uh, common commitment that we're giving each other space, especially for those who know each other, to just kind of keep it like, oh, they'll be fine and we'll connect in a few days. Find out about the adventure. So have a good day of practice, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.